Welcome to the Kenmore Church Podcast. We are all about filling hearts and fueling mission. We hope this content builds your heart and mind and equips you to reveal Jesus in this season of your life. This whole, it's hard to define this in a way that lands in everyone's life. The term we've, we've coined has been Jesus term. Why do, you, why do you dwell on having no bread? Why are you thinking about the stuff that's missing in your life? Um, and my mind might be on this more than most people. I just assume everyone gets this. But how could I possibly think that? The disciples didn't get it. They were with Jesus for three years or so. Um, I've been walking with him for 30 years and I'm only just starting to get it. But I can't think of many more, most, more fundamental or important or impacting principles in your life than this one of, of focusing on the provider rather than the problem. Jesus said, you know, when, when he went through his wilderness experience, the one big lesson of his that he learned, and, and he, he nodded his head back at the Israelites, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we can confine that to being, oh, that's just when we're hungry. But think of it in terms of what's the thing that you most long for in your life? What's the thing that, that just stirs your spirit, the thorn on the side, the thing that you want to happen that hasn't happened, that, that can't be grasped, but you can't seem to let go of it. It's just that thing that you've got and you just want it to happen and you push and you shove and you know God's in it somehow. It's, it, you know it must be his will for your life, but you wrestle with it to, to make it happen, but it just doesn't seem to happen. It's like a God-sized dream, but you can't make it happen and it's always just one step out of reach. Or it's a relationship that just doesn't come or it's a sense of inadequacy in your life. And has anyone ever heard of a thing called the imposter syndrome? This is actually something that Christians suffer for uh, hugely in church life and it, it actually fosters uh, a sense of hypocrisy because we feel like we come to church and, but in our head we're going if they only knew what's really going on inside of this mind that I'm not this guy or girl that they think I am and so we battle with this tension of the imposter syndrome and that's a sense of inadequacy it's God would look at that and say well why are you focusing on what you sense you lack because the whole idea of the Christian walk the whole idea of humanity walking with God since Genesis 1 is that God is with us, Emmanuel, that's what Christmas is all about. And your inadequacy, it's real, but it doesn't matter because God is enough. And this whole life that we're supposed to have with him is about him being enough and us partnering with him. Strength won't get it done, but you don't focus on that. You focus on the one who gives you that strength and have your logic start from that basis point. I just remember about a year ago when the whole concept of this thing began and, and uh, we were starting to talk about having a service and... I hadn't met anyone, any of you guys, only a few of, the, of, of the, the true believers who just said, we're in, you know, and um, when, they started, when, I, when they first approached me to start this church, all I saw was the bread, the lack of bread. I'm thinking, I've just moved in up there, I've just renovated this house, this can't be God, and I'm just thinking about disruption, I'm thinking of pain, I'm thinking of all the stuff of why I wouldn't want to come down in my flesh and, and start a church and uh, knowing all that's behind that. But God reminded me of what I've been labouring for for years. You know, what this church is now becoming through his grace, a, a place that grows people in their hearts to the point where it just overflows and changes their world, filling hearts, fueling mission. I've been dying on that hill for years and years and years, just longing to see that that's, this is what we do, this is why we're here, that, that Emmanuel, God with us, changes your life so that when you go into your workplace, it just leaks out and you become contagious. And to create a place that grows leaders and grows the larger church and a place with no logo or ego. It's, you notice we haven't got a fancy name. I just wanted to be a church. 
in Kenmore. <laughs> so I registered the name, Kenmore.Church. That's just it. We're not changing. We're not, we're not getting fancy. I'm not getting a bun on the back of my head. I'm just, you know, <laughs> I'm not wearing shorts that look like pajamas. I'm just, <laughs> I'm old and I'm slow. We're just who we are. And you've got to be who you are as well because I know the God in you is enough. And we can get this thing done. We can, we can build a church for a new generation that changes this world through his power because it's not about us. It doesn't start with who we are and what we lack. It starts with who he is. And it was just compelling for me to know, as I really sense God's clear word in my heart, to know that's his dream too. That was his heart resonating for that too. It wasn't just me all this time. It was God. But, it, but my fixation on the discomfort and the disruption could have gotten in the way of that. And so I made a deal with God. Anyone ever done that? Don't do that. But this one, it was more of an understanding. It's more of a memorandum of understanding I had with God. I said, I'll, I'll build people if you build the church. You said that's your job, you build the church. I know how to build a church. I've, I've read the books and done the courses. Man can build churches, but I prefer the one that Jesus can build. Can we do it that way? I'll build people. I'll make disciples. You told me to do that. You build the church. And I'm not going to worry about how big or small or what colour it is or what its name is. We're just going to get on with it. And so this year has been really the first phase of that since Easter and, and you're all here and, and welcome to any visitors who are here as well and, and you're just joining in on an adventure that God's, this is what it looks like when Jesus builds a church. And uh, so we've all just gathered together and done what's required but, but next year it's going to be somewhat different as we grow on top of that. Bless those kids, Lord, it's part of Kenmore, isn't it? Holiday time, it's all right, it's all right. Huh? It's all right. You know, it was even harder in Jesus' day. There were goats in church. <laughs> Didn't seem to worry them. It's all good. See, the noise, I like it. I, know, I understand, but I like it. Because it reminds me, am I, am I hearing God or am I too easily distracted? Because our life is a life of distraction. Social media, all the stuff. We get, we get a clear moment in our thought life, out, out flicks the phone, you know. And so the next phase of our church life is going to be a bit, not, not so much different, but building on top of this year. Uh, we're going to begin to build and this culture of spiritual formation together. We're going to really solidify that. There are going to be more groups for men and for women, specialised ministries. We're going to get more into inviting the lost in here. We're going to talk into marriages and personal freedom. All the stuff that fills your heart and fuels your mission. We're going to deal with the real stuff next year. God willing, uh, too, we'll have a pastor on board, another pastor by Easter time. Uh, and then we can develop more leaders. We can just get this thing together, get youth and young adults really pumping, because that's why we're here. It's for the next-gen ministry as well. I really want to formalise missional outreach to our community, to build missional people, to build a missional church, and then work together. I'm already working now with half a dozen churches around Brisbane to begin formulating next year a, a, a unity movement where we, uh, we don't know what it's going to look like or what it's going to be called. The, the, the saying there was no logo, no ego as well. I thought, you're my people. Let's get this thing done. And so there's just a real dream to not focus on what we lack, because Jesus has a plan, and Jesus only knows going forward, and so together we're going to do that. But I'm convinced more than ever that it's time for an upgraded expression of Christian life, that what we've lived in the last 20 or 30 years won't cut it for the next 10, let alone the next 30. And I think we need to revisit, and uh, I understand vision leaks, uh, that we forget what we stand for sometimes, 
And so I just want to, as as our last sort of normal message for the year, remind us of the core DNA of what we do, why we do it, and why it matters. And it's a revisit of what Jesus himself introduced, looking at people that were without God and those who were with God, and how he reframed Christianity. And I think it's something we need to do together, is reframe faith, life with God, Emmanuel. What does that mean? Because Jesus, when he was born, changed everything. And yet humanity will default back to religion. We're suckers for religion. Just give us the rules, teach me to perform, you know, all that sort of stuff. We, we gravitate to judgment, but he just did everything he could to break that mold. He was talking in John chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman, a, a, a Gentile, a, a mixed breed, if you like. They used to, the Israelites used to call these like a mixed breed. They weren't quite uh, Jewish, but they weren't Gentile either, and they used to despise these people. And there's Jesus walking through there because the scriptures say he had to go that way. He had to have this divine moment. And the woman's talking to him and, and giving her version of religion and, and um, says, oh, you Jews and, and us Gentiles and you people reckon that we're supposed to go to a certain place, but we worship here because, you know, this is the way we like to do it. And Jesus just goes, time out on the logic here, lady. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming. I love that word, yet, yet. That's your reality. This has been their reality. And yet, their time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. Some translations say in spirit, but it's in the Spirit. Worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. Do you know that God is seeking worshippers? His eyes roam to and fro going, I'm looking for the worshippers here. I'm not looking for the rule keepers. I'm not looking for judgment. I'm not looking for who's got the moral placard outside the abortion clinic. I'm looking for worshippers of spirit and truth. Where are they? God is spirit, he says, and these worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Now, I posed a question in the email this week that I sent out, and I need to say it again because only 32.4% of people open that email, and uh, I'm onto it. I know who opens it and what time. <laughs> no, no, I, I could, but I don't go there. But I pose, I pose this question, and it's just one. This is the question that Jesus was posing. You know, what is better or what is worse? Worshipping a God that we admit to not understanding at all, or to worship a construct of God that we have that comes from knowledge, reality. It's, it's true knowledge, and yet it's incomplete. What's better out of those two or what's worse out of those two? To admit that we don't understand God at all and just worship this God we don't know or to have a a partial construct of God, assuming that's all that there is to him and worshipping that. The Samaritan lady, she had little teaching. She had no understanding of God and yet her hope was still in him. Very clear as day. Her heart was longing for God. And this is no... Uh, rating of, of her experience of God, but there's many people out who aren't finding themselves in church every week. Church just doesn't work for them for whatever reason. And yet they're worshipping a God. They don't fully understand. They just know there's a God. It's going to be interesting to many of us, I think, who ends up in heaven when we get there. didn't see you at church on Sunday. So this woman was probably one of them. And yet then there's the Jews, they had all the history, they had all the teaching, they had the rules, they could judge with their eyes closed and in their sleep. Their knowledge of God was accurate, but it was incomplete, wasn't it? 
It wasn't all there. There was no grace, there was no forgiveness, there was no relationship and there was certainly no power. So Jesus contrasts these two. He looks at both of them, the Gentile and the Jew, and he says, yet and yet. In other words, let's just draw a red line through both of those for a moment because here's what God is looking for. So he's ushering in a third option. He wasn't saying that the worshippers he seeks are a combination of what the Gentile woman was doing and what the Jews were doing. Because he said you've got to worship in the spirit. And that's not what the Samaritan woman was, was doing. She was trying to uh, convince Jesus that religious practice was confined to a certain place. Neither does truth, when he says the worshippers worship in the spirit and truth, does he say, oh, there's, there's part of you and part of what the Jews are experiencing here. They had knowledge but not the full truth. Jesus came back and said, I am truth. You want to know what truth is? You've got to look at me. If you want to know who God is, you've got to look at me. See, truth is different from knowledge. You can just keep pouring your head with knowledge. And it may be accurate, but truth is the whole truth and nothing but the truth. The truth is the, the real deal. And Jesus said, who's truth? I'm truth. Look at me. Whatever picture you have of God and religion and how your faith is supposed to look, if it doesn't look like me, you should question it. If you're getting it from the Old Testament, if it's not reflected in me, you've got to, you've got to question how you're interpreting that. Because I am truth, he's saying. I am perfect theology. It's supposed to look like me. I'm the author and the perfecter of your faith. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 says that in the past, in the Torah, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and many times and in various ways. What he's saying is that's the totality of your knowledge. All you understand about God has come from the Old Testament. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. What he's saying there, the Son is the completeness. The Son is the truth. Your depiction of God must be Jesus. All you've seen before me from the, from the law and the prophets was one slice of the pie, but I'm showing you the whole pie now. This is what God looks like, me. And so he's inviting them to worship in spirit and truth in the fullness of what that looks like. I don't know what your journey is. Maybe you can relate to this. I know there's a lot of people in the room who can, but I got saved into a church that used to vote on the carpet colour and it said that spiritual gifts were of the devil. That was, that was the height of our Christian experience was, was how hard you could work in your own strength. And then I sort of rebelled a bit out of that, which is so unlike me, as you know, and um, moved into the other extreme. I thought, this isn't just working for me because my experience is just so different to that. You try to convince me that God can't change a life I've come from darkness, stark atheism, violently opposed to Christians. Set one on fire at school, which was my least proud moment. But that was me. It was very Paul-like or Saul-like. Now I'm a Christian. Now everything looks different. No one had to convince me. No one argued me into it. One day I was like this. One day I was like that. You're trying to tell me God doesn't work anymore in power? Man, I'm a new guy. Got nothing for me over there. So I went to, went to the other extreme. Moved to a very excited movement. This is back in the early 80s. Huge personalities, lots of pizzazz, global vision. It was all going on. and It was the Wild West, I tell you. It was mad. But in that scene, I used to love it because it was full of energy and, and all this sort of stuff. And, but I, you know, inevitably, I saw all these huge public downfalls of some of the highest figures. And, and the theology was ordinary at best, you know. And there were some, some practices going on. I thought, gee, that's not what the Bible says. And so the, the Baptist in me went, went this way and the Pentecostal in me was going this way. I thought, I don't know how this is going to work out for this little black duck. It's just not, not good at all. And it all left me with far more questions than answers. Anyone 
been on that journey, you bounced over here, then you bounced over there, and you just think, church, like honestly. So I just began my own personal journey. And many of us here are on that journey too, just to get back to the raw basics. What if we just experienced what it says in the Bible? What if we just believed what Jesus actually said? What if we took what he started as our logic and said that's where it's supposed to start? And what does that journey begin to look like? And started to see transformation in my life and others and power, real power to save and to heal and to change lives. Freedom, mission, a desire to go out. I thought it's true, it's real. It's a simple gospel. It's a dynamic relationship. It's a powerful demonstration. And it's true and it's for us today. This is the walk of spirit and truth. And, and as we started to flesh this out, when I went into ministry, hungry people everywhere began to join in. People that were weary with, of religion and, and, and longing to be clothed with power, but integrity with that. And the more I talk about it, the more I just see more and more people. It's a polarizing message because religion hates what I'm about. I take great solace in that because Jesus didn't like religion either. But I know it's abrasive and I know, I know it's not for everyone because not everyone's in that place. But it's like it's all in or it's all out. But don't fluff around with religion. Don't fluff around with God. Believe what he says and act on that. But I just know that so many of us here have that same dream to see scripture realised in their life. They're tired of unbelief and addiction and the same fears and stuff that the rest of the world goes through. But what if we could turn that around and you start to say, no, this is real. I've seen this real in my life. And the testimonies here begin to grow as they have been. And what if you transfer it from stopping to dwell on your own lack of bread or security or ambition or dreams fulfilled and we start to have kingdom goals around our life, spiritual goals, eternal goals, things that really matter for eternity, that despite your own constraints in your own life, you're happy to see God release what you would like to happen in you into the life of someone else. I'm so inspired by one man I know who's profoundly deaf and yet he's prayed for many hundreds of people to receive their, he their hearing and seen it come back, but he hasn't received that. That mess, that tension of what kingdom life can look like that doesn't make any sense to us and yet it's powerful and releases transformation into the world. There's a dream to, to gather friends around of like mine and get into community and start to transform the lives of the poor and the needy. That you can see, people, you pray for people and you see God do something amazing in their life. That's the sort of life I'm after. That when we all, it's all over and you get buried one day, the world mourns the loss of just a great human being who's just lived for other human beings and see God work through them. And that's the dream, that's, that's sort of my idea of how church should look. That's the way I read scripture and that's normal Christianity. Healing, power, freedom, integrity, faithfulness, fruit of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit. But I'm not going to sit here and just tell you, just go and do that. I've just found out over the years, because I've been that guy, and it's just too easy to say, well, there's a picture, just go and get on with it. It's just not like that, is it? It's a spiritual journey. And I know many of us here are just hungry to take that journey. That's what I want. I'm not there yet, Jesus. But if you tell me that it's real, and I see a few signposts on the way, and I see evidence that this is the way we need to be going, I don't need to see it all now, but I'm prepared to lay it on the line and take that journey into what you're doing because that's the only journey that's going to save the next generation. And we're taking that journey, a journey into spirit and truth. And it's messy and it's imperfect and it's never quite the way we all want it to find. And yet if we use scripture as the anchor and we say, Jesus, what did you mean? A worshipper of spirit and truth. I've got a feeling it's not going to look quite as Western as we would like it to look. It's not going to be quite as ordered as we would like it to look. 
But let's dig in and see what he actually meant. Spirit in the spirit and truth. Now, you gotta, it's easier to portray under this what we would want him to mean. But what did Jesus really mean? In this context, he was saying that people worship beyond the idea that God is found in a certain place at a certain time, that he's everywhere. Um, and we would say, well, that's easy. We, we acknowledge that. God's with me all the time. And yet we come to church on Sunday for a specific reason, we, don't we? We want to see God work in our lives and something unique happens here. But when we get to work on Monday, do we have the same level of faith that this God in me is just as powerful to do just as much or more in the lives of those around me? I read a great quote this week. It says, I believe churches are meant for praising God, but so are 2am car rides and showers and coffee shops and the gym and conversations with friends and time at my work desk. Don't let a building confine your faith because we will never change the world by just going to church. We need to be the church. So it's, being, it's beyond just words. It's being in the Spirit, worshipping in the Spirit. In other words, His Spirit. Worshipping with God's Spirit. Now this is going to be an anomaly for many people, especially if you're just new to our church, but it means our Spirit meeting God's Spirit. It's an experience. You can't get around this one. It's like it's an experience. And when I say an experience, it, there's no boundaries and definitions on that. It's just real and it's tangible. The gospel writers, particularly Apostle John, just says, how do we know we're a Christian? How do we know we're his children? Because his spirit testifies to our spirit that we're sons of God. It actually is. There's an element of experience, a tangibleness that looks the way it looks for you. But our culture for centuries now, since the age of reason and the first um, industrial revolution, has devalued uh, and even ridiculed that which is unseen. We value objectivity and, the, and reason and independence and stoic persona and, and all this sort of stuff. Nothing particularly wrong with that. It's just not totally right. Because God's looking for worshippers in the spirit and truth. And so we need to develop this because our spirits, for many of us, are actually asleep. They're slumbering. It's like they're alive, but they're in a coma. And we need to wake them up. And it's not just a flick of a switch and a single prayer. It's, it can be a journey, but it takes a process. And so this sort of unactivated spiritual culture that we've de we developed over 200 years has meant that we've become a secular church. We talk about him, but we're essentially, our default can be practical atheism, where in practice we do it in our own strength. And we focus then on what? Our lack of bread. Because that's all we got, is what we can produce ourselves in our own strength. And so this is the thing we've got to battle with. But as spiritual beings, we need to retrain, and it takes time, retrain our spiritual ears. You know, your spirit can work, your human spirit can work in, uh, in a separate way to your soul or your mind. Paul talks about it in Romans 8. The spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, being God's Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. He's saying, when you pray, and I can just see a whole heap of people going, that sounds like a great idea, but how do you do that? Well, that's the journey. That's the journey. And we're just going to keep, we'll keep looking and talking and practicing and going into all the implications of that and the boundaries you need to put around that. But know this, there's no more effective prayer there's no more answered prayer than a prayer that's directed by God himself, that's inspired by God himself. 
But the, the, the sort of outrageous partnership in this for me is that God could do that without you, but he chooses not to. His spirit can talk to God the, the Father and Jesus without you. But the, the way the world and heaven works is that he engages our spirit as his priests on this earth since he's given us this, this earth. Psalm 115, 16 says, The highest heavens belong to God, but the earth he's given to mankind. We have a role to do here. Our role is like ambassadors to invite the king in. But we don't know how to pray sometimes. So he says, well, let me help you with that. Because if we follow what he's saying, doing what he's doing, then that's where the power is. So this is a learned discipline. And it's a developing culture. And it's a developing anointing. And uh, it's... It's one of the toughest journeys I've had to navigate for so long. You know, it's easy just to camp in one camp where everyone understands terms like anointing and, and prophetic and all that kind of stuff, and they just live in that space. But for me, the real journey is taking normal middle Australia, normal people, except for myself, normal people, and just saying, what does this look like for the rest of us? How can we take this journey in, spirit, in the spirit and in truth? How do we not just bounce off the edges of extremity here, but how do, we, how do we do this with power and with grace and with good practice? That's tougher, but man, the fruit of that is fantastic. And it's the realm of the hungry of heart. It's, it's not the realm of those who just want to lounge back and sit back and play religion or, or play, well, God's got my number, he knows where I am if he wants me. It's, no, there's, a, there's an engaging partnership that goes on here and only the hungry can have that. It's one of the postures of living from God, living with God. Now, there's different postures in Christianity. And sitting on a lounge chair with a leg up over the arms, not one of them, waiting for God to turn up. There's a, there's a leaning back. There's a moment where we lean back into him like John did at the Last Supper. But it's, Lord, what are you doing? Lord, what are you saying? I'm your beloved son. What, have you, what are you doing there? There's a leaning in sometimes. It's listening. It's like, Father, what are you saying? I can't hear you. Father, what are you saying? And sometimes there's a leaping where you're just on the job, you're just activate, and you're advancing the kingdom, you're seeing the sick be healed and so on, you're just going for it. There's all these postures that we have, but sitting back and doing nothing is just not one of them. And so it's a partnership. So that's living in the Spirit. It's a whole adventure, and I want to talk a lot about it. You can't cover it in one message, just to flag it, that we're going to have a lot of fun going there. But also are people who worship in truth, and this is the balance. Although balance is wrong. Because we have to be 100% people of God's spirit, but also 100% people of God's truth. You can't just say... In the context of what Jesus was saying, he was contrasting um, his idea of reality and truth from man-made religion. He was defining himself as the truth there. You've got to worship in the spirit and you've got to worship in truth. But this, that, affects, that concept affects the way we do things here. It's talking about praxis or the practical way we outwork working with God's Spirit. You've got to work in power. You've got, to, you've got to do that, but you've got to do it Jesus' way as well. You've got to do it in truth. There's a maturing that happens. For example, would you see if Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes down, everyone's looking going, these guys look drunk. They're mad. Do you reckon Jesus would have looked that way? He wouldn't have. The fact that they were full of the Holy Spirit and they were carrying on in some way that made people think they were drunk means they weren't used to it yet. They weren't used to that experience. They weren't stewarding it well. They were in the spirit, but not necessarily in truth. There was a growing that needed to happen. Would Jesus have been comfortable in crazy Corinth 
where all the gifts and the power were working fully, but yet the poor were being neglected, there was separation, there were arguments, there was sin going on. Would Jesus have been comfortable with that? No way. There was spirit, but no truth. And so there's a maturing that needs to happen there where we take this journey, we do Jesus' will with Jesus' strength, and we do it in Jesus' way, and then you see transformation and longevity about it. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 14, talking about this very thing. He says, so what will I do? Well, I'll pray with my spirit. I'll go there and I'll do that. But I'll also pray with understanding. So you see the separation there, what's happening spiritually and what's happening in his mind. The two can coexist there really well. I'll sing with my spirit, but I'll also sing with my understanding. And the result of this, when you begin to work this through, is we do it fully with God's power and fully with wisdom and understanding as well. That when, when unbelievers come in or those young in their faith come in, they see the love and the charity and the grace and they see the power and they do what Paul talks about as he carries on. He says, so they will fall down and worship God saying, God is really among you. Because there's power and there's grace in this house. And I don't know about you, but I hope this is what you long for in your Christian experience. It's for me, there's just nothing less that we can be going for here. That we can sense God's closeness when we walk in this room and experience love, uh, forgiveness, direction for our life, hope, power. That we can hear him. We can hear what he has to say together and individually as well. That people could walk in this house as they do and say, God's really among you. So as we sort of enter this holiday season... The reason I bring this up is it's a time where we normally go on a break and we, and we sort of just stop. And for many people, we stop our disciplines of quiet times and, and worship and giving and all the things, the good spiritual practices. But when we get into 2020, we, we want to take this journey. And if your heart races a little bit more at the idea of having a more powerful, a genuine experience of God that's bigger than your understanding and, and sees amazing things, then you need to prepare yourself for that. You need to develop that hunger in your life. And so I just invite you over this holiday season to stretch yourself in a new way. Find a new spiritual discipline. Set aside time in the quiet. Or find a way just to clean house. Let God deal with the junk of this year and, and to wash away the ambition there where there's been things that you've tried to muster up in your own strength and you realise, man, this isn't working. But the conclusion you've come to is that maybe God's not for me anymore. Or maybe God doesn't even exist anymore. But just deal with that and let it rinse through your life and realise, now, he is good. My logic's not going to start with that. I want to walk in spirit and truth. I want to let go of that which I can't manufacture myself in my own strength because it's just not working out for me. And I'm going to trust him that he's got that covered. Because you know all the biggest things in your life, the big, the big callings upon your life, the big, uh, all the stuff that he would draw you to that's the biggest blessings in your life are impossible for you to manufacture and push open a door into that. You can't do it. His calling always requires his sufficiency. But as soon as we grasp onto it and we try to strangle that thing ourselves, it's almost like he goes, well, when you're ready to let go, I'll get involved. And we wonder why we just butt up against this thing all the time. It's time over a holiday season just to let that stuff go. Hit a reset button on your heart and say, Father, I want 2020 to be a year of faith and of spirit and of truth. I'm just going to get over me for a while and, Lord, just let this one be yours. And it's irrelevant of our own levels of sickness, poverty, frustration, all the stuff. That's his responsibility. Let him worry about that. You've prayed about it. Leave it with him. And, but just, we need to get on 
and be fruitful in life. Say, Father, why don't we start with the assumption that you've got me covered, with the assumption of your sufficiency. Lord, what's your plan? How are you going to use me? Here's my two fishes and my loaves. Let's get on with it and to see what he can do. Great things can happen. Mm -hmm.